At the age of 47, a mother of two was found dead by her spouse, seemingly from a sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, known as SUDEP. The family grieved and life moved on, as did the spouse, finding a new partner. That partner vanished, only to be discovered dead months later. Both deaths, 10 years apart, are connected by one man. Is he a serial killer in the making? This is the case of Diane Stewart, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Murder Me on Monday podcast. I'm Cameron, and joined with me is Mother. Hello. Okay, was it epilepsy, or is that a place? No, that, it is epilepsy. That took us about eight times to, to record it, because I, I wasn't sure at this point. And then I got the giggles, and I couldn't get it out, and I put an extra L in it, which didn't help. Um... I know we should have done a Valentine's case this week because Monday is Valentine's Day, but this case only wrapped up on Wednesday and it's, it's super hot, as they say, and we've already sort of, you know, I wanted to do it. And so welcome to episode 50. We did it. We got here. It seemed appropriate to do this case now. As I said, the trial has just concluded and it ties in exactly with our first episode on the murder of Helen Bailey because, yes, Ian Stewart again. Prime example of a blue beard, which is a phrase you don't hear very often these days. It's for French folk tales, apparently, where the man kills their wives. And that actually applies to quite a few of the cases we've covered, doesn't it? Anyway, although this episode is about Diane, there will be a bit of backwards and forwards with the two cases. As some of his behaviours with Helen's case, which seemed odd to onlookers at the time, can be seen to be a pattern when you look at Diane's case. Um, he learnt stuff on his first murder, but with his second, watchers believe it was his arrogance that led him to get getting caught. Reporting from a court is restricted by British law. You can't record it. You can't take pictures. There is also a code, a code of conduct that the reporters have to adhere to. So it's putting together the case from what was allowed into the papers and some audio of 999 calls. There are a lot of minor details I would like that I can't find. I genuinely think those questions were not asked in court, but there may have been in statements that were given by witnesses, but we obviously don't have those. What do we know about Diane? Sadly, not a lot. A child of the 60s, with one sister, who was three years younger that she was very close to, she met Ian Stewart at Salford University in the 1980s. They got married in 1986 and moved to Bassingbourne in Cambridgeshire in the 1990s and had two sons. Bassingbourne is a small place, about 11 miles from Cambridge, with a population of under 4,000 people. The place may be better known for having a very large RAF base there, which was used to, used to house um, US Air Force during World War II. It closed eventually, but it was reopened as a training base, and then there was some major controversy with some Libyan trainees causing havoc in Cambridge in 2014. Do you remember that one, Cameron? No. Oh, right, fair enough. So they are married, tick along. He's a software engineer, originally from Letchworth, the Garden City, as it now likes to be known as. And colleagues, they didn't like him. The neighbours everywhere, they all found him odd. When he gets med- medically retired from work, as having the condition called myasthenia gravis. My, myasthenia gravis. Isn't that what Voldemort used to kill Harry's parents? Sounds like a Horcrux, doesn't it? I did wonder if he'd fake that. No, Horcrux is what Voldemort makes so he can't get killed easily. Vagadavas. No, it sounds more like a curse. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Vagadavas yeah. is what he uses. I was making a joke. Yeah. Like, cause you, what, you can't say it. What was it called? Because I don't know what it was. My myasthemia, myasthemia gravis. Which is? It's 
it's an odd illness. It's an auto autoimmune illness. It causes muscle weakness, double vision, drooping eyelids, can cause trouble talking and walking. There's mention of him walking incredibly slowly in the first episode. I, I know um, former co-workers came up with that. But there's none of the other stuff seems to it, it's odd it usually hits men over 60 and women under 40 he was also a member as was diane and the children of a local bowls club and he played so we know he was still driving as well at the time of Helen's i had murder. vague recollections of that I, I thought you were going to say bowls i'm surprised yeah. i remembered i remembered that so he, he, his motor skills weren't affected obviously this is the kind of illness as it's as it's tested for via a blood test, they can actually say, yes, he's definitely got this. He's not faking it. But the seriousness of it, I start to wonder if he does. Mm. He's, he's getting this monthly insurance payout that we mentioned in the first episode of about £2,000. He's probably, th that's the total. I don't think that's the insurance payout in total. I think that's adding on the benefits he would have gotten as being disabled. So in the 1990s, Diane is diagnosed with epilepsy. She's put on medication in 1992 and is completely stable. There are no fits at all. She's working as a school secretary, bringing up the boys and looking after Ian. Everything seemed perfectly normal. June the 25th, 2010. The eldest son goes off to take his driving test. The younger one was at school. According to Ian, around 11am, he decides to go to the supermarket to buy a French breadstick and pate to celebrate the driving test. Nowhere could I find that anyone had rung home or said, yes, I passed, but presumably they must have done or they text. Imagine you pass your driving test, you're a young lad, you finally get a sliver of freedom. And the reward or the gift that you get is bread with some pate, like meat spread, meat paste. Yeah, I mean, talk about low key, a, kite, a card. A cake, something. Yeah, not paste. No, it was, I just thought that was so bloody odd. Anyway, apparently, according to him, he gets to the supermarket and realises he's forgotten his wallet, so turns around and comes home. It's brought up in court that there were no witnesses to that, and I thought that was a daft point to make, because why would there be witnesses? Nobody... So the poor lad didn't even get his meaty no. breadstick? No, okay. no, no. So I have heard the 999 call that he makes, he makes, and I will link it. There are transcripts of that call out there. The call was 18 minutes and 35 seconds long, which I thought was a long response time. Some of the questioning, it's obvious the call handler wasn't actually listening to responses, just noting stuff. So I'll only give you the relevant parts. I was astonished when I actually found that they'd called in the air ambulance as well. So it really was the whole works were thrown at this case. So the call time as registered by the ambulance service is 11.24 a.m. The call handler. Okay, tell me what happened. He says, my wife's had a fit, I think. She's off in the garden. She's, she's in the garden. She's unconscious. Are you with the patient now? I'm just indoors at the moment. If you're wondering what the hell at that point, he goes inside to get a cordless telephone and stands inside the bloody house with it. He's got a mobile phone in his pocket, apparently, but he goes and gets the cordless phone. So the 999 operator says, can you see her from where you are? Yeah. How old is she, please? She's 45, 47, 47. Is she awake? No, no, she's not awake, definitely not. Is she breathing? No, no, don't think so. Right, you need to go out and check on her for me, please. I'm right beside her now. Is she breathing? No, sir, no, no. Is she not breathing? I don't think so. Can you check her for me? 
Yes. Is she breathing? I don't think so. I've turned her to try and get her into the recovery position. I can't do it because she's flopped back. I think she's had a fit. You think she's had a fit? I think so. She does have epilepsy. Okay, bear with me in a moment. He then says, there's a doctor that lives opposite. Can I go and get him? The operator says, no, bear with me a moment. Just bear with me. I'm talking to colleagues. Do I do anything? What do I do? Okay, she's had more than one fit in a row. She hasn't had a fit. She was not had a fit for a long time, about 20 years. Has she had more than one fit in a row? When? Today? Yes. No, I wasn't there when it happened. I just found her. I don't know. Okay, is she breathing at the moment? And it goes on like that. It's And he's, he's still asking if he can go and get the doctor that lives opposite. And the operator says, no, they're on their way. Let, and they then talk him through CPR. You hear it on the call. He's not doing it properly, you can tell. And he's constantly asking how hard, how fast, etc. He's not puffing and panting when you do CPR as you do. Then he says the ambulance has driven past, then gone the other way. And then you hear the paramedics turn up. You can hear the paramedic say, excuse me, sir, what's happened here? He then repeats, she's had a fit. That was the 999 call, okay, which comes out later is very, very different, but I'll stick it in chronological order. The ambulance was on scene at 11.41am and the death was pronounced at 12.02pm. The poor boy who just done his driving test turns round the corner of the road with his driving instructor and sees three ambulances outside his house and just assumes that his dad's had one of his funny spells and will be going off to hospital. Apparently it wasn't unusual, but three ambulances for that? The youngest is brought home from school by a neighbour. Ian apparently didn't try and keep him away from his mother's body and he couldn't re- the boy couldn't remember later if it was the police or ambulance who had told him that his mother was dead, but it was one of them, not his father. Police do turn up with calls like that, so it's actually perfectly normal. For all intents and purposes, as I said, Diane had died from what they defined as SUDEP. I mentioned at the beginning, which is the coroner's ruling after the autopsy. It wasn't a forensic autopsy, as there would appear to be no need. SUDEP? Yes. What is that? Sudden expected death in epilepsy. Oh, it's It's a very rare, it's actually quite a rare complication. You can. It doesn't matter whether you frequently have fits or you haven't had one for, for many years. Is that what's strictly been caused by the epilepsy itself, having the fit, rather than falling and hitting your head? Is it, is it from the actual act of the epilepsy? It's a combination. One, one, it's the actual fit, and then you can fall and hit your head. and that I, will I, So it does include that then? Yes. I, I wasn't sure if the actual act of having the fit then causes you to, to die, much like it a heart attack. Do. Yes, So full toxicology wasn't carried out and there wasn't a neck dissection, which we talked about in other cases before as well. Diane's sister, I mentioned, she was very, very upset by her sister's death. But Ian didn't want her around him and his boys. So she didn't go to the... Exactly. We don't know. She just wouldn't have her anywhere near them. She tried multiple times to talk to Ian, but he wouldn't talk to her. And she had unanswered questions. It later comes out that Diane had told her that things were not good between her and Ian. And for whatever reason, the sister had been uncomfortable with that conversation. It was a couple of years previous. And she hadn't gotten into the reasons with Diane, what that was about. And apparently they were also arguing. So probably feeling guilty why she hadn't asked the questions of her sister. And she said at the time that 
she felt that these were questions she couldn't ask Ian because it wasn't right because he was the grieving widower. She rings the coroner. Was she suspicious of the death or was she suspicious of... Or was she just curious? She, yeah, it was... I'm not sure if curiosity is the right word when your sibling has died, but is it... Is she it wants, didn't add up. She wants to know what happens and because he's putting a wall up and refusing yes. to give any answers. You're obviously going to seek where you can to find those answers, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. And he's set this narrative of she died of a stroke. That's why... He, did you think that's why he's constantly reiterating to the people on the phone? It wasn't It a was stroke. a stroke. Oh, fuck me. Fit. Same difference. <laughs> Same difference. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah she, so, she so died of epilepsy. So she's had a fit and then when the uh, ambulance get there, she's had a fit and then does he want to go get the doctors because then the doctor could then say, yes, she's dead rather than the ambulance crew have to come and do it and then potentially save her or at that point when she's already well gone and obviously it wasn't a fit or possibly stroke. Who knows? At this point, it wasn't that. So why do you think he was constantly trying to drive the narrative of it was a Exactly. Hit? As you said, he was constantly trying to drive the narrative, which is exactly what they do in these situations, which puts authorities on the back foot. He would have given her, oh, yeah, she takes epilepsy medication every day. Here it is. It's reinforcing it. They would have no need to look further. That There were no suspicious circumstances, were there? And why do you think he wanted to constantly see the doctor? Because he wouldn't be able to sign off and be like, done, tick, but put her in the hospital. Like, Delaying or... tactics. Yeah, possibly. Yeah? Do, do you think she's already long dead by the time he'd rang them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I wasn't sure if he'd done it and then... Yeah, she was long gone. Okay. So, as I said, the, the sister wanted questions answered and she thought she could only get those from the coroner. She's obviously guilt-ridden through all of this because she then feels bad and rings Ian to tell him that she's done that, she's wrong. Every, everyone feels guilty when a relative dies. You think, oh, I could have stopped it. Or if I was there, I could have helped. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't when it's something like a fit. Yeah, a fit. So she, ring, she rings Ian to tell him that she's spoken to the coroner. And he loses it. He wasn't happy with her. He told her it was inexcusable, that she didn't need to know, that she had no right to do it, and he hung up on her. It's none of your fucking business, mate. Yep, yeah, that's basically what she got told. They have the funeral... No, I'm saying that's what she should have told him. It's none of your fucking business. It's my sister. Do what you want. She, she doesn't need his permission. Get in the bin, lad. Come on. So they have the funeral after she's cremated at Ian's insistence. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, for the sake of medical research, Diane had instructions on file that her organs, including her brain, was to be donated for medical research. Ian had no option but to consent, although coroner's office records show that he request be, requested that nobody be informed of this. So he didn't want anybody to know. Would they even have to respect that? I don't think so, right? It's, got, it's just more like a courtesy. No. What? That, no, um, that the no one gets told it's happened. Because obviously he can't argue that it, for it to stop because she wants her organs donated for science or whatever, doesn't she? Yeah. They then do that. He can't argue it. But then he then said, can you not tell anyone? You would have thought that they could... could would those people have to respect that and say, okay, we won't tell anyone? Or, is, or what I'm saying is, would it be a courtesy if they're not to do that? I but would they, have thought it would have been a courtesy. I can't see any legal reason why they wouldn't tell anybody. Do you think they would? Or was, I guess it's too well, who, that's who too would unique. ask? Yeah. The point is, who would ask? A lot of what I've said about the funeral is hindsight. Diane's family described Ian as calm and emotionless. His family said he was in bits, but only in private. And you can't draw it. I don't think you can draw anything from that. Life goes on. There is money to be collected. 
£28,500 from a life insurance policy and also Diane's bank accounts. It's a big chunk of change. It's borderline life-changing in the sense that you can get out of a pit, but it's not life-changing money. It's not incredible sums. It's a year's wage of a a fairly average job. Well, it wasn't. Because in her bank accounts, if you added that to the life insurance policy... Is she stacked? How much money did she have? He he got his hands on £96,600. Again, big chunk of change, but it's not life-changing, life-changing. No, but in addition... Oh, there's more. Yeah, there was just shy of £57,000 being held by what's called other financial institutions that was not claimed as apparently no correct probate, probate paperwork had been presented to them. Lots of bees in that, and I apologise if I'm closing. So he couldn't claim that 57 grand. He could grand. get his hands on it. And why this correct paperwork wasn't presented, nobody's been able to figure out. I reckon the court knows, but I don't think the public are going to get there to see that. There are some banks, you know these weird obscure uh, online banking systems you can have that isn't from a traditional bank. Sometimes when you set up an account with them and you, for whatever reason, need to give... The you know, key phrases. Yeah. What's your, what's your what's your first dog? Where did you go to school? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Sometimes they ask such such obscure ones that when you answer it, you basically can't remember what they were, and they can essentially hold on to your money and not give it back. Yeah. And that's kind of fucky. So I was wondering, what would you have to give in order to get that money? Apparently, he backed off really quick. He just wouldn't provide what they were looking for. It, Maybe it, they wanted a full autopsy report. Yeah, true. But then, but because she's been cremated, though, wouldn't that sort of void that? I know that's kind of what they want to see, but. Well, you're tough. We don't... We, it's one of those questions I would like an answer to that I just haven't got. But I just thought it was bloody interesting that he backed off real quick. So he's got just shy of 100 grand and he could have gotten another £57,000. Again, not life-changing, life-changing, but it's a bloody good that chunk is, of money. That's borderline because then at that point you can get... Your money can then start to make money. Yeah. You can then start earning property. I did wonder as well if that money that was in other financial institutions it's described because her parents had long gone. thinking like stocks and bonds or other property? Or a trust or something yeah. like that. There was something, I don't know. But according to Ian, he didn't need that money. He said it was for his boys now that they didn't have their mother. Uh, okay. Makes sense. Yes. Pretend that pretend we don't know what we know what we know because yes. the first episode you can find it on well. Yes. I'm with him. Yes. And then again, lots of it is perfectly reasonable. You would want to fight for it. So the fact it's given up so easy would either say something or then it doesn't say something. The absence of it doesn't necessarily prove it. Because if you push it really hard, someone could be like, oh, that's suspicious. But then you'd be like, no, it's nearly 50 grand. You should push for it. But then giving up so easy makes you go, why did you give up so easy? We don't know if maybe her sister knew that he hadn't been able to get his hands on that money. We don't know who else knew about that 57,000 pounds or not know about it. As I said, he goes out to buy a car, a red sports car. The prosecution at the trial really went to town on that little nugget. But again, I think that was straw clutching. Ian's explanation as to why is actually very reasonable. It's the same make and model as the one he and Diana had when they were first married and childless. And the red one that he bought was the model that they'd always wanted. It's perfectly reasonable. He then joins a Facebook group for widows and widowers. And this is where he meets Helen Bailey in 2012. And he and the boys move in with her in 2013. In July 2014, he sells the house in Bassingbourne. £530,000. The mortgage that was left on that was £2,500. 
He gives Helen £450,000 towards that £1.5 million house in Royston. And he said that she had wanted to keep him to keep 50k for himself. So where's that 96k from Diane's death gone? Was that put into the mortgage on the Battingmore place? I don't know. By 2016, there were plans for a wedding. Instead, there was a murder. Apparently, they'd made financial arrangements that meant in the event of the death of Helen Bailey before the wedding, Ian Stewart would obtain the house and substantial financial advantages. The total capital payment on Helen Bailey's death to Ian Stewart would potentially total £1,835,000 in addition to the main house and that second home in Broadstairs in Kent, the one that she was supposed to have gone down to when she hadn't, if you remember the case. When he was convicted of Helen's murder on the 22nd of February 2017 and sentenced to 34 years in prison, the police started to look into the death of Diane and eventually go to, to the prison to charge Ian with her murder in 2018. Ian's response to that charge was exactly the same as when he was charged with Helen's murder. He says, you're joking. He answered no comment in police interview, instead providing a prepared statement. Many, many places wrongly state it's the death of his first wife. She was his only wife, as Helen was his fiancée, and from my research, probably soon to be an ex-fiancée when it all happened. I was going to ask this, and I probably did in the first one, when we covered it the first time. Why didn't he just stay with her? Was it going badly between those two? Yes. Okay, but wasn't she, wasn't he his, wasn't he her like weird grey fox? Yes, that's exactly it. Chunky yeah. boy or whatever. I yeah, it, it she, was, she had a weird phrase for it that she'd used. Yeah, big, beautiful, grey, something or another. <laughs> it was, it was, it's really odd. It comes out, there's lots and lots, when I did all the research for this episode, there are lots and lots of one-liners in multiple different areas that when you put them together, you get a different picture. Her friends didn't like him. They thought he was weird. She had started to have, Helen had started to have doubts about him. Anyways, we know that. This wedding that they were planning wasn't, the planning wasn't going well. And it was very, very likely that she was going to ditch him. Now, from the research for this case, I found that when they, he joined this Facebook group as a grief place to hang out, he targeted, apparently, a number of different women in that group and they'd all just found him so creepy and icky that they wanted nothing to do. Some of them had met up with him, gone on sort of like... They'd used it almost like a dating forum. Yeah. What was actually worse was Helen had a... I want to say the, the person was described as a grief counsellor. Whether they were qualified or not, I have no idea. But one of the things this grief counsellor told Helen, apparently, allegedly, according to what I've read. You don't need to worry about getting sued, mother. You can give your opinion based on what you've read. This person told Helen to grab Ian Bailey with both hands. She didn't want to risk him slipping away, so she'd been on her own. At a certain point, you could argue that it's a, it's a um, comfort-seeking behaviour. And they can help with the grieving process. But to grab onto someone and latch onto them arbitrarily just because they can be your only source of happiness when they themselves make you miserable. Like, that, you, you, could, you could see how from one side it would be a good thing to do. Seek the things that make you happy. And from the other side, this boy don't actually make you happy. I, I get that. But if the counsellor had been 
I think, any good at their job, they would have analysed the fact that Helen had seen her husband die in front of her in traumatic circumstances 10 months previous. Too soon. You can have a bit of fun by all means, but don't tie your whole worth up in this one person, which is what she was encouraged to do. So she met him in 2012, and when she died... Um, you know, I think it'd run its course. It was a, a few years relationship. They lived together and she, she'd she seen him for what he was as a person. He's a lazy ass shit, basically. I I don't dispute that he's got this illness, but I dispute the severity of it. I'll, it'll come out later on some of the things that he actually said in statements that proves he was a lazy shit. I think Helen had seen that he was a lazy shit. His wife thought he was a lazy shit. When they'd gotten married and they'd had children, she was a stay-at-home mum. It's We all know that it costs as much to put children in daycare as you normally you earn from a job. It's cheaper for one person to stay at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He didn't like that. He didn't want her to be a stay-at-home mum. And it's not long after that that he comes down with this illness. And he gets to be a stay-at-home dad, but she's still expected to look after the children. She has to go out and get a full-time job. So... Ian, right, the trial for Diane's murder, it commenced on the 17th of January 2022 in Huntingdon Law Courts. Ian had a different barrister from the first trial, but the same prosecutor was shipped in to try the case. He knew Ian Stewart and all his nuances and he knew all his background, he knew all his triggers. Due to Ian's current conviction for the murder of Helen Bailey being described as similar fact, it was allowed to be disclosed to the jury. He could probably argue it if appealed and it was prejudicial, but it was allowed. The exact phrasing phrasing by the prosecutor was, Helen Bailey's murder is significant in this instance. Of particular significance is that he murdered a partner. He murdered her at home in a home he shared with her. He murdered her at a time both her sons were absent. He murdered her mid-morning and murdered her by restricted breathing, probably by a chokehold, and he showed a willingness to cover up the murder. Lots of witnesses are called for the prosecution. It's telling that the eldest son said that he knew his mother was epileptic and took two tablets every morning but had not seen her have a fit in my lifetime. They were... For the prosecution. He said that he remembered there were raised voices between my mother and father. He was at home on study lead for A-levels the week prior and couldn't hear what it was about. And he said that he'd seen them arguing over the years, but it wasn't a regular thing. The youngest son just repeated what he saw on the day and how devastated he was and had seen bloody foam around his mother's mouth and kissed her forehead as a goodbye. How old was the youngest? Fifteen. He said that the bloody foam in his mind fitted the epileptic fit theory and there was never any doubt in his mind at the time. You can bite your tongue, can't you? Yeah, yeah. As a, a, but but in autopsy, there was no biting of the tongue. And he, 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 it, that was just one example of why yeah. there could be blood in the foam. It could be yeah. during the fit, you fucking something hemorrhages yeah. and you bleed. Yeah, but that's why yeah, he, yeah. it all fitted together. The paramedic who attended the scene said he was led led through the gate by Ian and found Diane in cardiac arrest in the rear garden. He told jurors that Ian had appeared initially distracted, idly pacing, and that he didn't seem particularly distressed or anxious at all. The paramedic said 
There didn't seem to have been any effective CPR, but we were told when he came out of the gate that he was just doing CPR. If we kind of analyse what's happening there is a husband seeing his wife have a fit in front of him. He doesn't know how to respond. They're pacing up and down and sort of being detached, less entirely possible, and not being able to perform CPR. Again, that is entirely possible. Yeah. I don't think anything there is out of the ordinary. No. It's, all, it's all explainable. It's all explainable to a point till you find something further on. Yeah, I know. And I know he's done it because he got sentenced for it, right? But I want to know what's happening. Yeah. So or, or I'm explaining. I, I don't explain it away as if I'm on their side. I just try to think that it's not out. It's not, it's not weird. It's not out no, of character. No. According to the paramedic, generally effective CPR causes trauma. You break your ribs a lot of the time, don't you? Yeah, crush the ribs, they pop, they snap. Isn't it for it to be a proper form of CPR, the total like depth of someone's chest it has to be something like 50% of it. So you have to compress them so hard that it... It's two to four inches you're supposed to aim for. Man, the, the, the ones that I've seen on YouTube about how it's meant to be done properly, those fuckers get smushed. Yeah. Not everybody, the paramedic said, not everybody knows how to do it, but that's what you normally see if effective CPR is commenced. He said he saw none of this. He said he saw blood-stained saliva on Mrs. Stewart's mouth. But if there had been effective mouth-to-mouth, he would have expected that to have been everywhere. So, as we said, at this point, you could think, you could be forgiven for thinking that he's just useless at CPR. But there's more. Well, he's useless at everything else, apparently. So, The police discovered that tissue samples had been kept due to Diane donating the organs for medical research. And during the trial, a number of very eminent forensic pathologists were called to the stand. Three experts examined all the materials and concluded that the death had not been from epilepsy, as she had a very mild form, which was well controlled through medication. One consultant urologist gave her risk of sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, SUDEP, at the time as extremely low, one in 100,000. Examination of the tissue consistent with early ischemia, which is damage to the cells due to lack of oxygen and blood supply. It was estimated that the damage happened over 35 minutes to an hour prior. Basically, he'd held her in a chokehold until she... But didn't, wouldn't she have bruising? Only if they'd done a neck dissection properly and they didn't. Even but just external bruising? No. Does, does that not happen when you die? No. No. If you'd done her in a chokehold, we've talked about this before. Okay, I mean, funny, but it's taken us 35 seconds to do it. That's a shit week. That's a shit chokehold. No, 35 minutes to an so, hour. Uh, yeah, 35 yeah. minutes to an hour. That's an awful one. It takes about six seconds yeah, to actually get choked properly. just held on to... There was one... Because there was no autopsy, because... Should have done or, some well, there wasn't a forensic autopsy. Apologies. There wasn't a forensic autopsy. There was suspicion that it might actually have been a plastic bag he put over her head, but there's been there was no evidence of that. That would make more sense, but then depending on the plastic bag, you would you'd get like fibers or something, wouldn't you? But if there was no forensic autopsy, nobody would have looked yeah. for it. You would have expected bruising around the face, but if you'd have been doing CPR and they've been doing resus, any bruising around the face would have been seen at autopsy and been expected again, wouldn't it? So he's he's fitted all this narrative, he's fitted it all together perfectly. They also pulled in the same home office pathologist that had done the autopsy on Paul Helen's body that had laid in that cesspit for three months. And he goes over what that autopsy found and then gives his view on the current case. He told the court that he would expect to see injuries on the outside of the body of someone falling to a concrete surface during a fit. Ian was supposed to have found Diane on the patio. 
there were no such injuries. We get to statements made by others about what Ian had said had happened to Diane, telling some people he'd been at home, but others that he'd been out shopping before returning to collect his wallet. He told one woman Diane had died whilst putting the washing out and that he'd found her slumped in the garden. But the washing line wasn't on the patio. It was on the grass. So Again, though, that could just be lost in translation. Because if, we, if we're to say the garden, because we've got that huge patio bit beforehand and then the garden, but there's a pathy bit and there's also the bit with the washing line, you could say that's a patio and where the lines get crossed. That doesn't that can be explained away. Yeah. If you say, oh, they fell over in the garden, but they fell over in the patio, but the patio is in the garden because it's the whole back part of the house. Like That's just semantics rather than actually arguing the intent of the word, I think. I think a lot of the prosecution case was a bit woolly, but it really was the forensic pathologist basically saying that the blood, the tissue samples from her brain showed categorically she was dead for at least 35 minutes. Do you know what other organs did? I was going to say harvested. I don't know if that's the right word. They got on, they acquired. There was mention in one place of her, her. of her heart being donated, but then I only saw that in one place and there was no further mention of it. But they had the tissue sample slides from her brain. Yeah. So we get to the defence case. Do you think that's a good thing that everyone should do? Donate shit to the science like that. So if you do get murdered, it's easy, it's, they can find you. Well, I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> hmm. Get to the defence case. I said, he's got nothing. They wheel out an old friend who's called Dr. Something or another, but it's made very clear to the doctor that he isn't a medical doctor, just in case they're falling. Why didn't he get named? And he's just Dr. Something or another. He was, I, I didn't even bother with his name. He was. They didn't want the jury to fall into that hero worship mentality that some people uh, have because that, of a medical doctor. Yeah, the um, appeal to authority. Yeah. Oh, he's a doctor, therefore he's right, even though he might. He could be a doctor and whatever. Yeah, he was. He was a family friend. Um, he'd known Diane and Ian for many years and said, yes, they had a perfect marriage. Everything was wonderful. I've never seen him angry, never seen him cross. They're real one friend out. They went, then wheel out his 90-year-old dad who said Diane treated Ian far too well. They had a perfect marriage and he couldn't have done it. Don't think he's capable of something like that because I've known him all his life, which I thought was the strangest thing to say. They couldn't wheel out his mum because she was dead. <laughs> and then he takes the stand, Ian. Absolutely no one understood why. And his evidence is actually why people shouldn't take the stand. He said that he realised while at the supermarket he'd forgotten his wallet, returned home to look for it and found his wife in the garden. I saw Diane just crumpled on the floor, he said. I remembered she was all twisted. Her arms and legs were under her and it didn't look natural or normal. I knew because I'd done quite a lot of first aid that I had to get her into the recovery position and clear her mouth. The first thing I did was try and get her into the recovery position. That was hard. I couldn't get her legs out from under her. He said he tried to clear her mouth, adding, how do you describe it? Sick, just a mess, basically froth. His defence QC asked him, was she breathing? He replied, I don't know, but I didn't think so at that point. He said he put her onto her back to put her in the position for CPR and then did 30 compressions and then mouth to mouth. His defence barrister said, a really silly question. Have you any idea how long that took? He says, the straight answer is no. At the end of it, I was exhausted. Stuart said that a doctor and a nurse lived in the house opposite theirs and he went to get help from them. He said he was obviously panicking and had left Diane on her own at the time, but returned to her when there was no answer at the house. He estimated he'd left her for five minutes. 
Diane was still lying there, so I tried CPR again. More froth came out. Because of the froth, froth, I thought she was breathing at that stage. I thought she was still alive. Asked how long he did CPR for, he said. I don't know. I know when I finished, I was worn out. That's when I went off again and made the 999 call. He said he fetched a cordless phone from the house and dialed 999, telling the operators his wife had had a fit. Told jurors he'd never seen Diane have a fit, but she did have epilepsy. And asked to describe his feelings towards his wife, he said, We were in love. Very happy. Very much so. It was, just looking back, too perfect, really. Too good. I don't think we ever had a big fallout, ever. He said they would talk. We did things like, you haven't done the washing up. Who's going to do the shopping? That sort of thing. So we have him telling the court he's done a lot of first aid, yet the 99 operator is asking how to do it, how to, you know. The paramedic said it didn't look like proper CPR had been done. The, the events seemed backwards. The, the way he described it is he'd done it, then rung 999. Whereas, based on what you'd said, yeah. when it actually happened was he rung 999 and they kept telling him to do the stuff and yeah. then not get the doctors. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. His statement in court is completely and utterly How different. How long ago after the event was it? When did it happen? This this so evidence a, was in February 2022. She died in so she died in June 2010. So it's 12 years. Mm-hmm. You could forget that. You could get it backwards. I know you've been in prison for a while, so you you've replaying in your head back and well, over yeah. And over again. I I trained in first aid. I'm basic, but I'm still trained in it. And I've been in situations, and the training does kick in. You panic afterwards, but at the time you do what needs to be done. And you talk about CPR. That's why I knew what to say. I can't remember what we used to call the, the bloody dummy things that lay on the floor. And you've got to... Was it Bob? No, no. there was there was a female one and a male one. And you used to hoik these things. It was yeah. quite, they're quite gross. They really weren't. Yeah. Oh. The, the, the striking mannequins you use are called Bob usually. Yeah. And, and might have the same name. And you, you really do have to put... You've got, you've got to give it some welly when you push down. Because it clicks when you push down on the right spot. Isn't it to the beat of the Bee Gees? Staying alive. Yeah, yeah, that's one of one of them. Yeah, yeah. and they, yeah, all the tests you have to go through. So I, he's telling the court he's done CPR. He's asking the nine nine operator how to do it. The paramedic says it doesn't look as though he's done any CPR. He's telling them in court that he finds her on the floor. He then goes to the neighbour. He doesn't pick up. He's got bloody mobile phone in his pocket, we find out. He goes to the neighbour and bangs on the door to try and get them to come and see to her. He doesn't ring an ambulance as soon as he sees her on the floor. He then goes back, sees her on the floor, tries to do CPR. So that's not working. He goes in the house to get the phone. He's saying that he goes outside with this cordless phone, but in the 999 call, he's in the house looking at her out in the garden. No. I'm saying liar, liar, pants on fire. He just stood there and looked at her. The prosecutor asked him, did Diane have pet names for you? And he said, no, I don't think she did. Not bad, fuck face. <laughs> yeah, well, after 24 years of marriage, you think he might know that, oh yeah, she used to call me Bellend or something, you know? <laughs> One of the best bits was on Cross. When the prosecutor asked him this, and I'll, this is this is Cross-examination, that was, yeah. okay. Cross-examination. Murdering Helen Bailey, disposing of the dog, Paul Boris, in a cesspit. I was wondering when he'd get brought up. Yeah. About five minutes in, I'm thinking, you're going to mention Boris again, yeah, aren't you? Yeah. I'm going to get sad. Yeah. So he says, disposing of the dog in the cesspit. Callous? He yes. replies, yes. You were affronted, weren't you, when you were arrested in 2018? Yes. You were wondering if this thing was coming back to bite you. No, I well, thought... Well, the ghost of Boris <laughs> coming back to bite him. 
Yeah. He said, no, I thought they'd found something to do with Helen Bailey. I thought they found the culprits. He will not accept in any way that he was guilty. And as far as aware, there's been no attempts at an appeal. He's still blaming these weird two that he thought Helen had been kidnapped. Do you remember the Nick yeah. and whatever his name was? He also doesn't appear to have twigged that his whole timeline of events is out. And nor does his defence barrister, to be fair. They don't seem to twig that. He goes to Tesco's, apparently, according to him, at 10.30 to buy these things, this pate and bread. Forgets his wallet, according to him. But there's no proofs of the trip. And why would there be? Because one, he hadn't done anything. He hadn't bought anything. And why would you need evidence all these years later? Tesco's in Royston is a six-minute drive from his house. So say 15 minutes to pick up the two items, the bread and pate, head to the checkout, discover he's left his wallet at home, goes back home. A trip totaling 27 minutes. Uh, you could dawdle in there. You can, yeah. You could find other stuff. But... You still have somewhere in the region of 27 minutes to account for before calling 999. So he's invented the CPR on standing outside the neighbour doctor's house for five minutes before making that phone call. I would bet bottom dollar he didn't do it. He doesn't tell them that he's already, already attempted CPR for about 20 minutes. Plus he says, I just found her. Plus, he was counting too fast, even for the two chest compressions every second, which makes it sound as if he was just counting very fast and not actually doing compressions. Two compressions per second would be very fast, let, let alone going faster than that. The 999 operator says, I'll tell you when to stop, sir. It's 600 times. Ian Stewart continues counting from one to four. They tell him, slow down, sir. It's one, two, three, four. You keep going. I'll tell you when it's 600 times, okay? He continues counting. They tell him to keep going on. And then they count it. He's going faster and faster. And they say, it's one, two, three, four. And he goes, sorry? He can't remember how old she is. Same as with Helen Bailey. He couldn't remember her eye colour with the 999 call. Mind you, I doubt I would even remember my own name if I was in a state. What colour are my eyes? Exactly. What colour are my eyes, mother? The grey blue. Depends okay. on the light. <laughs> I was just checking. <laughs> he created and maintained that false narrative that the death was caused by epilepsy. No one would have had any reason to doubt him, although the sister-in-law seems to have had an inkling, but you can't go around accusing people, can you? Uh, 999 calls. I got to thinking after listening to both of them, the first one from Helen and the second one from Diane. Now, I know his illness affects speech, but his speech wasn't affected. He sounded... I, I, want, I don't want to say he was panicked. He sounded flustered, I think is the best word. Which would make sense considering he just killed his wife. Yeah, but there was no emotion. There was no... It, that, to me, was the giveaway. There was no emotion. The trial was on the docket for four weeks, and even with very short days, typically 10 till 3, and a couple of days missed, there may be some legal arguments or somebody had COVID or something, it's all done and dusted in three and a half weeks. He was found guilty, and the judge's sentencing remarks are absolutely damning and bring out some evidence that wasn't in the reporting that I read. Would it have been um, admissible? Well, not admissible, whatever the word is. It's, it's evidence you can't use in the trial, but, no, it, but it's it, otherwise... It, it wasn't captured by the reporters that okay. were in the court. Oh, okay. Yeah? The paramedic who saw no evidence of 
blood or froth on your own face, which he confirmed there would have been if mouth-to-mouth had been performed by you. Okay, you could have wiped it off, but there would have been evidence of that, a smear, something. Yeah. No evidence of any injuries caused by CPR, as is common, and no vomit on you or on Diane or on the ground. Something that he said would have confirmed concerned him had it been present. Despite your repeated description on the 999 call of vomit, sick and her being blocked up, itself contradicted by the lack of any evidence of her airway not being clear on the autopsy, so she hadn't been sick, her airway wasn't compromised. And yet he's saying that on the call. That led you to invent that you had a cloth to wipe away the vomit, something you've only ever mentioned in the witness box, and no such cloth, vomit-stained or otherwise, was ever seen or recovered, despite you being with the body up to the moment the paramedics arrived and witnessed what was at the scene. It's really, really in-depth, these judges' remarks, and it's linked in the show notes. It's only nine pages, and it rocks. It really, really does. He absolutely rips him apart. Sentenced on the 9th of February 2022 to a whole life tariff. Incredibly rare for us in the UK. He's 61. He ain't going anywhere. Helen, going back to her, he would have known who she was. He would have known she was wealthy. She was very easily searchable. You know, when you met her in that friends, that Facebook group, he found out she had no children He found out her elderly parents and her brother lived very far away. I think for sure he targeted her. And it didn't help that people were supposedly to help her through, you know, that idiot counsellor told her to grab him. No. Serial killer thoughts? I think he bloody well could have been. What do you reckon? If he'd have been left? It's a a murder for circumstance, isn't it? Or murder for money again. He didn't just murder because he wanted to. It was the, the wife. You get a pair from his wife. Maybe it's not working between those two. Moves on to Helen. She's got more money. 20 times the amount of money he was going to get paid out. It makes sense. Yeah. It, it wouldn't. I don't see the point of him doing it to any random person. It had to have been for a reason. It makes sense for him to have killed those under his An intimate partner. Yeah. yeah, it's an intimate partner murder. Again, going back to these odd little things that were in the research, it's mentioned that... He apparently was getting pretty fed up with um, Diane and he wasn't happy with... She was giving him grief, basically. They were fighting and arguing. Their mention with the sister-in-law of the conversations in the 90s that her sister had deflected away from the conversation. She didn't want to have it. She was uncomfortable. And it was something along the lines that Ian was making her do something she didn't want to do. I don't know. He might have been into swinging and she didn't want to do it. And again, he wasn't happy with Diane. I'm not going to divorce her. It's going to cost me money. I don't want to work. Easier to kill her. It's easier to kill her to get the insurance money. He then, I think, it goes out to look for a replacement because he's one of these people that wants other people to take care of him. There's mention of he meets a woman and he goes on a date on Christmas Day and they sit on a park, on a park bench and he creeps her out that much. She just gets up and walks away from him. He's like, no, you're just fucking weird. None of Helen's neighbours liked him. It's just, I, I just think he was a horrible piece of work. And the pictures that come out, obviously, again, you can't take photographs. There are... Mug shots, 
there's a mugshot of him, but there are drawings from when he was in, in the court for this case round, and he's packed on the weight. It's obviously prison life. He's, they're feeding him very well in prison. He's a quite a, a tub now. He's a thick boy. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was a bit of a scraggly lump before, but now he's... <laughs> I just feel really desperately sorry for the children because I say they're children, they're adults, they're adult boys. They supported him through the Helen Bailey case. They yeah, believed as it, as him. As it transpires, he's actually called the mother in the first place. And that's going to make them feel guilt and remorse and whatever. Yeah. And they were prosecution witnesses this time round. Yeah. So, so they've they've turned. Yeah. yeah they've, they've come to realise. And I, can't, I don't think it's wrong that the 15-year-old wouldn't have... Re- an average 15-year-old wouldn't know which way is up at the best of times. They're completely consumed with their own world. So it wouldn't surprise me that he had never heard his parents arguing, never been witness yeah. to it. So, yeah. The older one, three years older, you might have been cognizant that they were... 2010, did you say it was, when she got she was murdered? Yeah. Judy, he was about the same age as me. Yeah. I was 14, I would have been 14, 15 then. Yeah. So it's not far off. Yeah. yeah. So you, you wouldn't have known if I was arguing with somebody. Or you, you, you're just in your own little world. Most teenagers are. But the old one... He would have been a bit more aware, I would have thought. And then obviously they've had all these years to think about this. And then I would think when once the police went to them with, look, this is the evidence we've got. Do you remember? So, yeah. So You got a message from somebody again, didn't you? Saying they're going to be near the Helen Belly house. And they're yes, going to send I you updated did. pictures. Yes, he did. He's going to go send me some updated photographs. I might, I probably won't post them because he has a copyright to those ones. But Technically, yeah. yeah but uh, thank you, Phil. If you do send me some new ones, that'd be interesting. So finally, for Diane Stewart, who was much loved by her sons, her sister, brother-in-law and friends, passed away at the age of 47. Thank you very much for listening. That's the end of the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Murder Me Monday Podcast and email us at murdermemondaypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Peace. Bye. Oh, and Rip Boris. Boris is, Boris is getting added to that. Bye. From a sudden, unexpected death in epilepsy known as SUDEP. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that, it sounds like epilepsy. It's not a... Is it a place or a thing?